Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for downloading the Green Majority Podcast. On our show this week, we talk a lot about electrification. We have uh, Matthew Klippenstein, who's an expert on uh, EV vehicles and the markets uh, around that uh, as well. We're also joined in studio uh, by Tim Nash, the sustainable economist, who talk a little bit about the finance and just sort of more meta uh, stuff about that topic. A very interesting show because Stefan's away this week, so I have two guests. Uh, I think you're going to love it. Uh, Just before we get to the program, I want to remind you, of course, as well, that uh, we would encourage you to become an actual member of the majority to support the work that we do. Uh, we've been working very hard to try and carve out some improved uh, program uh, upgrades, and this is thanks to our members. So thank you very much to our members. If you'd like to join the ranks of our thanked members, you can do that uh, by becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com slash green majority. Our uh, average donation is about six bucks. Uh, that's uh, good if that works for you. Whatever you're comfortable with is great. Uh, would appreciate that. You can do that at patreon.com slash green majority, as I said, or just go to the website at greenmajority.ca. Other than that, please Please enjoy this week's show. Welcome. Hello. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, uh, wonderful community radio partners across the country, and uh, Tim Nash. Hi there. Who hasn't been here in a while, but we're very happy to welcome back to our studio. You're, you're helping me fill in for Stefan, who's away this week. Big shoes to fill. Yes, uh, but uh, I think you're up for it. So Tim has been uh, on our program quite a number of times uh, as the sustainable economist. He's the uh, one of my favorite uh, idea sparring buddies, as well as the person we call when we're talking about anything to do with finance, because that is so far outside my area of expertise uh, that I can't even fake it, which is my usual go-to. Uh, so Tim's going to be here we're going to follow a theme a little bit this week uh well not very much literally very heavily i would say if uh, a theme around ev vehicles but sort of being loose enough that we're going to talk a little bit about sort of energy infrastructure and the markets around that and also the technology component uh and to assist with that of course uh i need tim's help with the finance but we can't really talk about ev either without my sort of go-to ev expert uh who will be uh calling into the program a little bit uh about halfway through which is matthew klippenstein uh he is is a journalist with Clean Technica uh, who reports on uh, electric vehicles for greencarreports.com. Uh, He's also the co-host of the Clean Tech Talk podcast as well. And uh, it's really funny because I connected with Matthew the same way I've connected with many of our experts, which is that someone uh, emailed the show saying, hey, I love your show, but I'm an expert in the area you were talking about. And you got that wrong. <laughs> Can I talk to you on the air about it? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Uh, which is, I'm pretty sure, more or less how we met Tim too. So, uh, <laughs> you know, even when I'm wrong, we, we're, better, we're all better for it because That's then the it. person just feels obligated to come in and, and help me out. Uh, so <laughs> that's basically how I met all of this week's guests. So we're going to talk to Matt a little bit uh, coming up. What we're going to be talking to Matthew about is um, much more sort of the the industry look at it. So uh, the uh, the big players, what's going on with the different car makers. We're going to talk a little bit about some other markets. So we're going to talk about what um, sort of how the society around clean cars are, are related to the society in other countries, specifically looking at uh, Norway a little bit, I believe. Um, 
and uh, we'll be doing some of that uh, and getting to some some news, which all of which is somewhat related uh, at the end of the program. But right now, what Tim's going to do is Tim is going to help me with his area of expertise, which is largely the finance. So just as a little bit of a setup, I just wanted to sort of set the stage, if you will, a little bit, referring here to a uh, article from a little over a week ago from National Observer called uh, Time to Electrify Our Economy for Climate Change, uh, says Senators. Uh, there's a number of very good uh, pieces of information in here. I'm going to quote some of them. Uh, please, as usual, feel free to read this for yourself. Um, as we unlikely are to get to all of it. But basically, the stage setting has to do with the idea that um, depending on, and I, I have to add this asterisk, even though the asterisk is not in the article, but uh, depending on how you count it, uh, about 80% of Canada's uh, electricity is clean. So that has to do with, uh, of course, we're talking about clean with regards to climate change specifically. So uh, this number includes uh, hydropower, uh, whose most of the damage from doing that is done by the time you've done it. Uh, so that gets counted as clean. We're talking about this includes nuclear power, uh, which, of course, is significant in Ontario, um, again, as being not contributing to climate change. Um, so it, it's but the amount of the conversation that comes from that remaining 20%, I think really is very interesting about what we do with that. And so I, I don't think we can get too much farther uh, into this from where we are now. But with that very basic framework, Tim, um, just to jump in here about sure. what we're looking at. So yeah, so 80% of our electricity, I'll, I'll call it low carbon sources. Mm -hmm. And it's not no carbon, it's low carbon. There might be other factors, but we can call it low carbon sources. So as we're looking to meet our climate change goals, um, Canada has the benefit, we're very blessed with our natural capital, that we have access to a lot of cleaner and low carbon forms of electricity, which means that from a sheer carbon perspective, we're a great candidate to move towards the electrification of much of our energy system. So when you think about energy and how energy gets produced in all these different ways, uh, a lot of it still gets produced through fossil fuels, uh, combustion engines, uh, diesel generators in remote areas. Um, you know, and obviously this is having a, a lot of a high impact on carbon emissions. So the idea is that what can we get off of those sources of fuel and onto electricity? If electricity is lower carbon, right, the question becomes, you know, what, where's the low-hanging fruit there? Right. And I would love to see, um, you know, especially in remote communities where so many people rely on diesel generators, right, to be able to get that reliable electricity um, as as uh, renewable sources become better. And I would argue that actually the first step is to the energy efficiency piece as they first require less energy to get everything done that they need to get done. Um, that then it becomes easier and easier to be able to, to meet those sources in a, a lower carbon way. Um, but really the biggest, you know, I think from and really what we're going to be talking about today is this idea of transportation, that this is transportation system here in Canada is largely run on fossil fuels. And so the idea is how can we move towards electrification? Um, I think with uh, uh, Matthew's expertise is on electric vehicles, uh, but this should extend to freight. Mm -hmm. uh, or freight, freight, I think is how freight, I call it. Freight, yeah. Not, I'm not afraid, but it's freight. <laughs> uh, um, and, and how we move around all of our goods. Um, and, you know, so it goes beyond just cars and also into trucks and into trains. You know, there's big debate right now about electrifying some of our rail lines. Mm -hmm. And so that fits into this conversation. Um, but, yeah, I think that kind of gives sort of the, the, the big picture overview. Is there anything else you wanted to add? 
Well, just um, just to the idea that, I, and of course, we want to point out that as we move forward, I don't know how much this will take place in our conversation, but I think I just want to point out a to acknowledge for the folks who are screaming at the radio uh, or or podcast player at home right now uh, that yes, this does not take into account our exported emissions, right? So when we're saying, oh, 80% of Canada's, you know, electricity is cleaner, uh, as you put it, um, and that, you know, the, one of the data points that the Harper government and others have sort of said, oh, hey, why are you making such a big fuss about the the tar sands? It only makes up, you know, whatever percentage of Canada's uh, emissions is that, of course, that those aren't counting the emissions that are when the when the product is burned elsewhere. So right. just a, for right. some listeners reminding you, yes, I know sure. that. And for other people, in case you didn't know that, I'm letting you know that. <laughs> but really, like, you know, in, in that bigger picture argument, it come forgive my supply demand mindset, but that's why I'm here. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, uh, you know a lot of the issues that uh, activists have going, been going after is the supply side, mm-hmm. right? And so trying to cut off supply, trying to keep things in the ground, trying to limit pipelines and that supply aspect. Uh, but equally as important and potentially even more important, depending on on the debate, is the demand side. Mm-hmm. And so if we can reduce our demand for fossil fuels by shifting things to electrification, then that's, that's going to have, you know, uh, uh, a nice big impact as well. So, you know, definitely it's both sides, but that's kind of how I look at it. And, um, yeah, and I think the point that I'd like to make and, and something that, you know, I think get, I, I want to put right at uh, uh, front and center is that uh, electricity prices in Ontario right now uh, are higher uh, than they have been in the past. And that's something that a lot of people are angry about mm-hmm. and has been a major issue. And what's interesting to me is when I look down at the cost, at the breakdown of the cost, so much of people's bills is actually about the transmission of that electricity, these delivery charges. And really, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we have this idea that, that energy efficiency, we should be consuming less, which, you know, from an environmental perspective, yes, yes, yes. But we're at a position right now where we have too much supply of electricity, then there is demand. And so we end up exporting or dumping a lot of our electricity for, you know, shockingly low prices. And that uh, as we can shift a lot of our infrastructure off of fossil fuels, onto the electrical grid, what that does is actually increase the demand for electricity in Ontario. So all this fixed infrastructure of all these wires and, you know, uh, transmitters and all that sort of fun stuff, um, that those fixed costs get spread out over even more kilowatt hours of electricity, which means that the price of electricity actually comes down in some ways. Now, obviously, if we're using more, we pay more for it. But in terms of the cost to everyone, um, I think we should be really supporting electrification if you want to see lower energy bills. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's an area where like I feel like more could be done. And 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 you know, longtime listeners of the show, and of course you and I, Tim, have had a number of private conversations outside of the show about this uh, topic as well. But it's something I'm I'm a big fan of. Like, well, why don't we just make a law about that? Like, that's like half of my comments I've I think I've ever sure. said to you. And one of the things I I and, and perhaps there's a good answer. I don't mean to say this like kind of like sarcastically, but right. I really don't understand why why the government's just not a lot more aggressive. Why any government, not just yeah. this government is not a lot more aggressive around setting future targets, yep. right? So like, hey, we want it like, so the same thing we have with cars, 
uh, around like a fuel standards every few years. You know, I, I don't know the history of it. Maybe Matthew will correct me, but you know, sure. roughly every few years or maybe decades, we go around and say, okay, now here's the minimum fuel standards. And and what I don't understand is because it seems like such an easy thing to do as long as you give everybody involved a long enough time horizon to like accommodate with it to say, okay, in 2050 years, all, all buildings have to produce half of their own electricity. You know, that's 30 years from now, get to work. Right. Uh, and that sort of thing. And and I don't know if you have an opinion on that. I know that's not your so we'll, expertise. But. What I would argue, I would just, I would take that idea and I would make it a little more practical, if mm. I may, mm-hmm. which is that it's not about governments doing this. It's about crown corporations doing this. Mm. One thing that drives me nuts is that I can get uh, sustainability data in terms of CO2 emissions, water emissions, you know, all these, you know, environmental social governance issues for so many companies in the world. Like it's kind of the norm to produce what's called a global reporting initiative sustainability report. Um, but our own crown corporations here in Ontario and in Canada still don't do this. So I can tell you Suncor's CO2 emissions like down – they've measured it. They've done a great job measuring it and many companies in Canada are doing this. But I can't tell you Metrolinx's CO2 emissions and I can't tell you, you know, something like Via Rail uh, or the LCBO. Mm. Right. They're not producing these. So, you know, part of it in my mind is just like, let's start measuring this data. Mm-hmm. Let's mandate the best practices that we hold our corporations accountable to. Let's hold our crown corporations accountable to those same best practices. And then we can start to set targets. Mm. Right. And then we can start looking at these things and, you know, we can look at Hydro One and, you know, we can evaluate it. Uh, in a way that is uh, uh, in line with how we evaluate these publicly traded companies. I mean, there have been a number of shareholder resolutions that have passed lately requiring fossil fuel companies to disclose their carbon risk and measure that stuff. And so I would just say, you don't, don't shout at the government to do this. Let's get the government to mandate that their crown corporations do this. Because I think that when we do it at that crown corporation level, that that's when we'll start to see the change on the ground that then the government can start sort of being proud of. Well, and because of the greater to, to follow, to keep following your thought there, uh, because of the greater requirement for a crown corporation versus a private corporation, for instance, to be transparent and for the people to be good. interest. Yes. And, you know, and people not only have more of an ability to access information and, and demand freedom of information requests and things like that, for instance, but they have a greater, they should theoretically desire to have this transparency. Right. Um, is that this could uh, also also create a benchmark and say, hey, you know, lefties and righties agree. We just d- disagree on the degree to which alternatives are better that, sure. you know, one of the problems with government is that there's a lot of redundancy and laziness. So if the LCBO can, you know, reduce their whatever by whatever, and you're in a similar category, you have no excuse for not doing at least as good as them, right? Like sort of create like a social pressure around because we then have a benchmark to say right. apples and apples to right. some degree. Hey, the government can do this. And right. you're the ones always saying that they're terrible at everything. So yeah. you should be at least as good as they are. You got it. And I'm fine with benchmarks. And I think the benchmark for me right now is being set by the private sector, that there are corporations that are setting standards around transparency, around accountability, around best practices on these environmental, social governance issues. And that they've now kind of taken the lead versus these crown corporations. So I feel like the benchmarks are there. It's just that we're not getting the data from the crown corporations to be able to evaluate it versus the benchmark. So that would be my demand. And I feel like that would be an easier campaign rather than saying, okay, government, you need to set targets, which we know is going to be more politics. I feel that if it's the crown corporations that are setting those targets and measuring their progress towards those targets, then that allows for longer-term planning beyond the next election. 
Uh, it allows for uh, uh, um, much smarter decision making at that more practical level. Now, we, one of the things that you do, which I forgot to sort of be more explicit about because we were so used to having you here, is that, of course, if for people who aren't familiar with Tim, Tim that runs one of many things you do is that you help advise people on their Not advice. Sorry, no, I was not trying to be advice. careful to not do that. I am not an You advisor. educate people and I help them make people. better decisions for themselves. I am a financial planner. There you go. And I provide coaching and consulting. Damn, I specifically thought yeah. that was the word that was the right word. That's the problem. Anyway. When, when I always <laughs> tell people I'm not an advisor, the first word that comes to mind, of course. Um, but yeah, it's uh, uh, the the rule is I don't I don't manage anyone's money, but I teach people how to do it themselves. Right. Um, so yeah. So what, now that that's clear, thank you, Tim. Uh, what I wanted to sort of ask you was because we're in a few in just a couple of minutes here, we're going to go to to Matthew on the phone and talk to him about sort of the market side, about specifically having to do with EV vehicles in just a minute. So while we're still and we'll be coming back with you afterwards, uh, and of course you're welcome to jump in while Matt's on the line. But while we're still at the sort of uh, Tim focused portion of uh, the early part of the program, as you've been obviously you can't give away anyone's personal information, but just at a metal meta sort of like off the top of your head level of people you talk to how interested are people these days in investing in like companies like tesla and like the clean tech so not maybe not just vehicles i I know so many tesla fanboys yeah they're usually boys there are some fangirls but they're usually boys and um and it's really interesting tesla is definitely the sort of quote-unquote sexiest company there but there are so many others and um there's i i would say that it's really interesting i get one of two perspectives uh, number one is the electric cars are amazing and Elon Musk is going to save the world and kind of this like fanboy psychology there. Mm. Um, the other side is is a huge skepticism against the uh, consumptive aspect of car manufacturers mm. and this idea that they depend on this notion of sort of two cars in every garage and that everyone has to have their their own vehicle. And that really electric vehicles, um, you know, as sort of interesting as they are from the, the more sort of nerdy tech perspective, uh, from, you know, if, if you're a cyclist or if you're worried about traffic or if you're kind of looking at alternative modes of transportation, it's still people are not happy with Tesla, just like they're not happy with the traditional car companies. That the fear is that we're going to have all of these robot cars kind of clogging up the streets and, and making it difficult for, for people to get around. So it tends to be one or the other. Of course, there would be, you know, some people that are ambivalent. But if someone has an, a perspective on electric vehicles, it's either like gung-ho – you know, absolutely, let's do this. Let's do it yesterday. Or it's this, nope, I'm putting them, I'm lumping them in with this other category of just consumer, uh, uh, you know, sort of, uh, 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 you know, troubled companies. I, maybe I'm asking you something which has never come up, which is possible, but I'm interested just following that thought. Have you ever had anyone interested or do you, if the answer is no, and, and perhaps you could say to the other thing, do you feel like people would be like if people could invest directly, like in the same sense, like, oh, I'm a you know, fanboy or girl sure. of Tesla, so I want to yeah. invest with them partially because I want the money, but also partially because it makes me feel cool to be a part of that. Right. Do you think that there's any interest or could there theoretically be interest in doing that in a much more tangible, civic-minded sense? Like if people could invest in the public transportation system or something? Yeah. Not well, from the money point of view, but sure. from the I'm personally invested totally. in its success point of view. I've, hey, I've long pushed you know, for – I think we – I would love to see a retail green bond mm. here in Ontario. I think if we ran a campaign similar, I think it was uh, uh, Tom Rand uh, uh, mm-hmm. almost a decade ago did a little project and it was like war bonds but green bonds. 
just like we had this whole campaign during the war about how your money, you know, put it to work, you know, support our troops. That's, let's take down this, uh, uh, you know, this, this evil Hitler. Uh, in the same way, it's, you know, if we had something specifically around funding green infrastructure and, and adding capital to this green bank that Ontario, I hope, is going to be coming out with soon. It hasn't been finalized yet. Uh, I think people would be right into that. I mean, certainly there would be a lot of backlash. I think if they did that, you'd have the normal trolls on the other side <laughs> getting angry about it. But, hey, I'm okay with that because that will just uh, increase interest. More people will know that, hey, this is a thing. You can invest and get a financial return while also feeling good about what that money is being used for. Yeah, I mean, oh, maybe we'll come back and maybe this is bonus show. Maybe we'll come back to it. Maybe not. But I'm now I wonder if to like going further down that rabbit hole to like how much are how much of a giant like argument would be caused if we said, OK, you can privately finance bike lanes. So if you can come up with enough money, then we're going to take car lanes away. And it's now a bike lane because someone came up with the money. <laughs> what kind of a nuclear war would be started? In I, Toronto I love it. That? I love the idea of being able to direct part of my taxes. If when yeah. I do my taxes, I could say I want 10 percent to go to this specific ministry or this initiative, I would feel so much better An optional, about paying oh, my man. taxes. You just spawned, we're trying to have this segment here. And you spawned two other shows, Tim. I'm sorry. Slash, you're welcome. All right. Uh, <laughs> thank you. So, Tim, uh, Tim's going to be sticking around uh, and we'll, uh, he'll, be, he'll be back later and may jump in in the next interview. When we come back from uh, our short break here, we're going to be talking to Matthew Klippenstein, who is the co-host for the Clean Tech Talk podcast, as well as a uh, journalist for the EV market uh, with GreenCarReports.com. He'll be speaking to us specifically about uh, What's going on with EV vehicles uh, right now? Very, very right now, uh, because it's a hot topic and it's getting hotter. Uh, so we'll be back with that and uh, and more. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful community uh, radio partners. Very appreciated. Uh, now, internationally as well. And of course, our podcast listeners, uh, also very appreciated. If you want more information about the show or links to any of the topics that we've talked about, as long as it, was, it wasn't one of the things I literally pulled off the top of my head, those will all be posted on the website at Green Majority after the show. So check there for that as well we're now going to go to my tech megan who's going to tell us what our music break is going to be before we do our interview and we are back you're listening to the green majority here on ciut 89.5 fm and i think i have matthew klippenstein on the phone are you there matthew i i am indeed um good morning uh, sir uh, thank you so much for taking some uh, time. I, I don't know if you caught uh, uh, the earlier part of the program, but I, I let it slip that the reason that we know each other is because you uh, emailed me to tell me that I got something wrong on the show. <laughs> oh, really? I, uh, well, I, I hope I was polite in that. Point. Oh, no, it's, it's actually one of my favorite way to meet people is like, hey, I love your show, but you screwed this up. Uh, and I've turned <laughs> at least four of you into co-hosts. So there you go. I've, well, I, the joke's on that? you. Uh, so Matthew, right. uh, we've been uh, speaking uh, quite frequently by email. You, uh, you're very gracious with your time as far as emailing me your, your comments, uh, which I very much uh, like, especially whenever we, I'm, I now wince whenever we talk about EV stuff, be like, oh man, I wonder if I'm going to get an email from Matthew now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it's usually to tell me I got it mostly right, but not entirely. Oh, absolutely. So, <laughs> so what I want to talk about, so uh, Tim and I were just sort of chatting very generally about sort of electrification and, and how this fits in with policy. But what I'd like to do to make most use of your expertise, I would like to uh, basically uh, just remind people, of course, that you're uh, one of the co-hosts for uh, the Clean Tech Talk podcast as well, and is that they can read about more of your work at greencarreports.com. You are my the Green Majority in-house EV expert. And based right. on that, 
you've uh, you uh, sent me a few articles that I think tell a very very interesting story about um, a whole bunch of stuff that people probably think they're very interested in EV uh, have never heard about because they've basically only been reading stories about Tesla. And I right. you have a few things you want to talk about, but I'm gonna I'm gonna use that as your handoff to to start the story. So go ahead. <laughs> sure. Okay. So I guess um, the uh, so Tesla has certainly sucked up all the oxygen in the room in the discussion about electric vehicles and, you know, with uh, uh, with a lot of credit deserved in that sense because they have put together a really compelling and uh, desirable, uh, enviable vehicle, uh, whereas other car makers have, uh, have focused on the more affordable, um, you know, pedestrian pragmatic vehicles to start with. So, you know, excellent credit to them. Uh, a lot of attention is now on their Model 3, which is, sort of going through the start of their ramp-up phase. They're hoping to get to, I think, about 1,500 vehicles a month by September, perhaps. They're, they're, they're not known for keeping to their aggressive timeline. But uh, certainly by the end of the year, uh, they were hoping to get like 20,000 vehicles made in, in the month of December, which is excellent, wonderful, transformative, you know, ticks all the boxes. Uh, the, the ironic part or the interesting part is that uh, Although Tesla has sold maybe 250,000 uh, electric vehicles um, in, in its history, the uh, Renault-Nissan alliance has actually sold about half a million. And uh, their CEO is a little bit grumpy about the fact that everyone knows about Tesla, but not many people know about uh, the Renault Zoe, the Nissan Leaf. Uh, Mitsubishi was actually purchased by Nissan recently, so the Mitsubishi Outlander plug-in hybrid SUV. Um, that's actually been delayed. Its North American launch has been delayed for about four years. Uh, at first, there was a little bit of a battery uh, uh, issue they had. But for the past three years, it's because demand has been so high everywhere else, they didn't think they could bring it into North America and keep customers happy. They didn't want to have people waiting for months or possibly years uh, for a long-promised vehicle, which, which is another problem Tesla doesn't have because everyone covets their vehicles. <clears throat> There was, an, there was uh, some interesting news recently that uh, Carlos Ghosn, the uh, CEO of Renault-Nissan, uh, you know, made, a, made a very uh, stern remark that no one knew that Nissan was the world's leader in uh, EVs and that he would be essentially doing everything in his power to remind people of that, <laughs> which means very aggressive, uh, which, which probably means aggressive marketing, aggressive pricing, and, uh, and perhaps even the introduction in North America of something that Renault has done in Europe. Uh, one of the challenges that electric vehicles have is that even though uh, they're much cheaper to run, electricity is so much cheaper than liquid fuel, even if you, you know, figure out how to put in a road tax and other, other things, um, it is still much, much cheaper. But the battery itself tends to be more, or is more expensive. So you get this kind of sticker shock, you know, someone's, hoping to spend 20000 on a vehicle and they see 30000 like, ooh, in, inside their head, they don't, uh, they don't say, okay, well, this is 30000 which is a higher amount of payment, but I'm saving such and such on gas. And so what Renault did with their Zoe, which is the best-selling electric, uh, plug-in electric vehicle in Europe, is they actually have a price without the battery. So you'll see a, a sticker price of around you know, 20000 or whatever the, whatever the heck that is. And then you can make a monthly payment on the car and a separate monthly lease payment on the battery itself. And what that does is it, it sort of recontextualizes everything. It's like, oh, yeah, this car more or less costs what I was hoping to buy. And, okay, instead of paying for gas, I'm paying a certain amount to lease this battery. Uh, you could even upgrade your battery. They've, uh, they've recently uh, um, 
improve their battery so you could actually switch out your older battery and then put a new one in, higher lease payment, of course. But it's uh, it's a very interesting business model innovation. It's a bit like the pay-as-you-go solar, um, which has really helped with the uh, solar's popularity in the States, where it takes away that sort of psychological or, uh, you know, in some cases, uh, you know, financial um, hurdle of, wow, this is more expensive, even though in the big picture, you know, total cost of ownership basis, it is. So that's very exciting because um, it's one thing to have a very enthusiastic, charismatic CEO saying, you know, this is the future, let's, uh, let's go to the future. And it's another thing to have other companies say, well, come on, you know, we're also doing this too. We want some attention. You know, we want to be as proactive and um, forward with these products because, you know, we don't want to be embarrassed by this little young upstart, that kind of thing. Yeah. I think there's, I think there's, there's two, I think, interesting things I'd like to highlight that you just said. One of them is that, is that idea, and just to sort of reverse it so that everyone's sort of really clear why that's so interesting, is that this would, the inverse of this would be as if a car company uh, took the entire lifespan of the car's fuel costs and just included that in the sticker price without delineating it. And you look at a, you know, you look at a beat up old car and it says like, you know, $75,000. And you're like, whoa. And you're like, oh, well, that's because that's all of the fuel you ever use. And that seems really ridiculous. Why would anyone do that? But effectively, what he's highlighting is that effect, that's an inherent disadvantage so far of how electric vehicles have been marketed, because of, effectively, they're being marketed with their lifetime fuel costs. Well, at least part of it, which is to say the, the battery component of it, uh, is arguably part of that fuel cost in that equation. Uh, and that so separating that out, it's not a matter of hiding it, it's a matter of making it clear this is for the vehicle, and this is for the fuel and that you should be thinking about that in comparison to the lifetime fuel costs of the vehicle of the gas car, not just the infrastructure of the gas car. And I think that's very, very interesting. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's, you know, that, that's exactly right there. So you'll get no email from me on that. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah. So basically the battery does cost, does, uh, require more energy to make. So you get a, you get some of the money up front, but certainly if you had your 9,995 or so dollar Nissan Micra and, you put in, you know, four, eight years of gas onto that, then suddenly the car's sticker price looks a hell of a lot higher, and then you would scare people away from it. So, yeah, that's exactly true. And so, and uh, uh, Tim actually yeah, wants to jump add, in. Um, you know, I think I think that's brilliant. And all I want to say is that it's the same problem that we see when it comes to energy efficiency, uh, when it comes to you know geothermal. We mentioned solar panels before. That so much of these green technologies, it's no longer a tech problem. It's a financial problem. It's a financing mm. problem. It's that it all requires this upfront investment. You save so much money. But as humans, for you know, we have this this behavioral uh, uh, sort of problem with paying all this cash up front. And so I just want to point out that you know it's it's such a big opportunity here in Canada where we have this amazing financial system. We we figured out how to finance the global mining system for better or for worse environmentally, but financially, no one else could figure out how because you know mine you have to pay everything up front and then you get the payout over years over decades. Right, Canada figured it out. It's the exact same challenge when it comes to financing so much of this green economy, and it's so disappointing for me that the Canadian banking system and financial system isn't all over this. Yeah, 
I, I think the the other really interesting thing you said there, there, Matthew, was the uh, was the thing around you know how much of it is is centered around Elon Musk. Well, I I wanted to point out, and I think you were insinuating this, but that 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 can also be a double edged sword because a lot of people don't like Elon Musk and and may be disincentivized from looking at it because of him. Like he's a very controversial figure, and I think by the uh, by the Nissan folks uh, muscling their way into the spotlight a bit more, that will help sort of normalize the market and not make it this sort of you either like or dislike Elon Musk. As opposed to, you know, are, is this a valuable, valuable technology or not? I, I, I think he's becoming perhaps uh, as much of a drag on it as he has a benefit at, the, at this stage. I don't know how you feel about it. Um, yes, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I think he is certainly a net positive for the sector. Uh, certainly, um, you know, most CEOs of most companies try to be as boring and bland as possible because you don't want to offend anyone. Mm. Uh, and there's a certain glee in watching a, a, a fellow like Elon Musk or, you know, the, a Batman or Tony Stark or whatever, uh, <laughs> who can actually do the things that you really wish you could do, although you know that you can't really get away with that in real life. It, it's cool to see people do that. Uh, but certainly he has attracted his, he has attracted detractors. Uh, one of the great things about having, um, having Nissan really on board here, having GM come out with their Bolt, um, other vehicles, Ford will have a plug-in F-150 in, uh, in 2020. The next time their, their Ford is, uh, F-150 is redesigned is it's no longer this thing that you can, you could stereotype as a California or a, you know, a granola eater kind of a thing. These are very sensible cars. You know, a lot of the, um, it's just like, like how renewable energy, most renewable energy in the States is produced in red states, uh, oh. who would, whose, whose economies would drastically suffer if, uh, if, well, if and when uh, Trump tries to get things through, um, it's, it's, uh, it's good that uh, our benefit, I guess, of uh, having electric vehicles being less about just Tesla and just Musk, just Musk is that you kind of allow people who might not like him to still like electric cars mm-hmm. uh, because that's what we want. We want everyone of every political persuasion to say, hey, you know, this makes sense. Are they perfect? No, you know, maybe bike lanes and bicycles everywhere are probably the perfect uh, situation, but they're a definite positive step, and um, the more people we can bring on board faster, the better off we'll be. And if, you know, as much as Canada can uh, can try to uh, be on the front edge of this, then we have a better chance of our companies, you know, straddling the globe as the behemoths as opposed to just being the local outpost of some, you know, Norwegian or American behemoth. Right. So speaking of Norway, uh, Michael, you or Matthew, you uh, perfectly read that that's what I wanted to segue to. So I want to talk a little bit more about the social. So one of the articles you sent me was from Alex Roy. Uh, it's on the from the drive.com, which is a website I've never visited until you sent me this link. But it's a very interesting <laughs> article. Uh, uh, and it's talking. It's sort of identifying the to to some degree. It's talking about a bunch of things, but one of them is the, you know, it's and and we've referred to it here on the show a little bit about well, you know, in Norway or in this other Scandinavian country, they've got it totally right, and we should be imitating them. And what this, which is not to say we shouldn't, but uh, it's what was very very fascinating about that was that you have to have to understand sort of the environment in which a lot of these very aggressive by our standard sounding policies are taking place, and a, and a big component of that is just that they have an extremely different social organization there that reinforces and supports and biases different values and that that has been a big it's not just you know they got an activist government and that activist government made all these sweeping changes and now whether they like it or not this society has been changed but that that the society that these changes take place in is a very very important part of that i'm wondering if you can pick it up there uh certainly 
Norway, uh, 50 years ago, Norway was, I think, the, the poorest country in Western Europe. And they basically hit the lottery with, uh, with uh, oil in the North Sea. And they are the rare case of a, a an individual, in this case, a country hitting the lottery who doesn't wind up, you know, being transformed for the worst by it. Um, perhaps because Norway had al- always been kind of on the margins, never been particularly wealthy, they had... Uh, they had been extremely prudent, enviably prudent, um, stewarding the money that they got from the oil, basically adding all the value they could to the oil before exporting it. You know, all these lessons that we wish that uh, had been applied in the Canadian sector with respect to oil and the oil sands and tar sands. And, um, and as a result, they have a bunch of, uh, they have a, a treasury. They have a stockpile of money they can choose what to do with. And some, some uh, maybe more individual-oriented countries would say, oh, tax cuts, uh, you know, I want to pay less for, for stuff. Uh, and other more collectively-minded uh, groups might say, well, let's, let's, let's keep this and see what we can do to benefit everyone. Uh, they ha- they, the interesting thing about Norway is that it's not so much that EVs get subsidies so much as they don't get the punitive taxes that private car ownership for combustion vehicles gets. Mm. So... So it's not that they get subsidies uh, uh, for uh, buying cars. It's more that the luxury tax and the import, uh, you know, the sales tax are excluded. Uh, as a result, uh, Tesla does not cost that much more than a combustion, you know, Volkswagen Golf, mm-hmm. which is amazing. And again, coming from the perspective of a, a relatively poor country, it's like, of course, if someone can afford a car, they're rich, therefore... We should uh, we should tax them more and and uh, make sure that gets redistributed. That would be a bit more difficult to put in place in Canada, although uh, we do have a, a lot more of a sort of collective pro-social sensibility than our cousins to the south, who um, certainly don't have any of that. Uh, but but basically, they they have a an activist or a I guess a government that believes a government elected by people who believe that. You know, they have every right, and they do, to choose what to focus on. And um, perhaps, as Tim said, once upon a time, the Canadian economy was uh, dominated by resource exploitation. And, uh, and so it was made easier and better for mining and other resource uh, companies to do business. Uh, if we can have that same, those same advantages or learnings applied to the clean tech world, I'm sure that we could clean up uh, just as easily. Well, not, not easy in business, but... I'm sure we could prosper extraordinarily on the clean tech side, uh, as just as you know, so many of the world's mining companies are based in Canada for for those very reasons of those advantages. Mm. And so, one of the interesting things from the article was the it compared to it made a comparison to an example, and I believe it was China, although I can't. I'm just scrolling here and I can't find the exact line that was talking about it. But I believe it was a Chinese example where there was an incentive for. Uh, EV vehicles, and then the the incentive ended, and EV sales in that area uh, dropped off a cliff. But the, and that's sort of been pointed to as some people saying, "See, you know, they're only going to be bought if you sort of push them." Uh, but the the reason it was meant that that example was given in the article was to was to actually say that this is highly dependent. In some places, it will have that effect because it really has to do with sort of the the society in which you're operating, what the connection between that society and their vehicles and other members of that society. Are are. And that was sort of what was interesting about the Norway example was that in many cases, there wasn't actually really that clear 
hear a difference between the uh, combustion engine vehicle um, outside of the environment concern and the fact that it was quieter. And it mentions that one of the really strong social values in Norway is to not bother other people uh, and that there is a quite a high social value uh, value on the quiet of the vehicle. And that, the, and that that may not transfer to other places, but it was part of why uh, they didn't think that the potential future removal of some of these incentives would impact uh, EV sales in Norway the same way that it did in this other example in China. Right. I, I could imagine that there probably aren't that many Harley drivers in uh, the city no. of Norway. <laughs> From the description um, of the journalist, it sounded like he would have been run out of town if he'd driven in with one. Yes, yeah, so. that, that's right. Run out of town by a very quiet mob. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, <laughs> So uh, by a whispering mob, yes. So uh, it's certainly true that, uh, at least in these early stages, where uh, incentives have made uh, vehicles more uh, more affordable, then if you remove the expenses, uh, uh, remove the incentives, then the vehicles get more expensive, fewer people can afford them, and sales fall. I think in Georgia, sales of like the Nissan Leaf dropped by like 80% or something crazy uh, when their incentive program, which included, I think, free parking or something, in the cities uh, ended. Uh, in BC here, relative to sales in Ontario and Quebec, uh, Leaf and uh, Volt sales dropped by about half when our $5,000 incentive disappeared and then rose pretty much back to the same levels um, uh, when they were restored. Interestingly, the, the luxury models, the Tesla Model S, again, sales compared to these other provinces where incentives have stayed in place, uh, the, they weren't affected, which is interesting. So it suggests that maybe on the luxury side, you're not as you know, you're not as susceptible to this. Can I afford the vehicle? Right. Mm. Uh, but certainly, um, certainly, incentives or what they have in Quebec, uh, which they've adopted the zero emission vehicle mandate um, from California, where the government says, yes, they do have incentives, but they basically say, well, look, uh, car makers, um, you guys, uh, we want you to sell this percentage of uh, zero emission cars by you know next year, the year after that, and so forth. Um, you know, the laws are complicated, so it's not like you have to do it every single year, but over a three-year rolling average or something, you have to achieve these targets. And um, that is probably the most effective way of doing this because it allows uh, companies to cross-subsidize. So let's say, you know, Ford makes its money off of F-150s. Well, it might increase the price in Quebec. You know, slightly to compensate for the fact that it has to sell some of these less profitable uh, zero emission vehicles, or it might push them into making you know a plug-in electric uh, Ford F one hundred and fifty. So, so those are uh, that's probably the most effective. British Columbia, as you've noted, uh, we have the Green Party being the balance of power here. Oh, sorry, uh, a... Matthew, I just want to cut in. Just let you know, we're running a little bit over time here, so we'll oh. have to wrap it up. Absolutely. So basically, <laughs> there is there is hope that BC could have a, a ZEV mandate at some point. What will help us, and this is another cultural thing, is whereas Ontario has four auto assembly plants, Quebec and BC don't have any. So for us in these two provinces to put in this kind of mandate isn't that big of a hurdle because we're not going to have the employers of hundreds of thousands of people saying suddenly, mm, you know, this, this government isn't too good for us. So that is another cultural factor. But even with all the culture factors, we can make a lot of forward motion if, you know, if we as social, a social movement move things forward as opposed to trying to passively wait for our heroes to do everything for us, because uh, that's the only way, only way that change has ever been made. Absolutely. And thank you so much. And, and I want to let people know, uh, Matthew, that you put together some, I, I, I'm not for sure how much of this you sort of put public facing, but you compile some extremely 
detailed data on this sector. And so if people are interested in vehicles, particularly in EV vehicles, I, I do encourage them to go and look at uh, uh, your work in, in whatever form you're releasing it. We'll make sure we have a link uh, to some of your content on the website. But uh, people can people can dig quite several layers deeper inception style than we're digging right now if they're interested and, and that you have that data available. Absolutely. I'll, uh, I'll re-email it to you. I'm always happy to uh, answer any questions folks might have. All right. Thank you so much, Matthew. And, well, thanks, uh, Matt. And uh, so that we're now at our second uh, music break here on The Green Majority. We hope you've been enjoying our discussion of EV and, uh, and Canada in general uh, so far. Uh, Megan's going to tell us what our second and final music break is, and we'll be back to wrap up the last few minutes with Tim. All right, we're back to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Sarah Kaser, and I'm in the studio. We got uh, Stefan is MIA. Well, I know where he is, but you don't. But in his shoes are being filled this week by Tim Nash, who is, is one of our... Is that what that smell is? Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> is one of our, uh, one of our longest uh, unofficial correspondents here, or I think at this point official, but you just, uh, you just kept coming on. Yeah. We just decided yeah, we better give you a title. Friend of the show. Friend of the show. I like that. I like that too. Uh, friend of the show, Tim Nash is here, who uh, also happens to be our sort of finance expert within this uh, sector. And um, I, I flagged uh, an article that I was interested in talking about because I thought it was interesting, but it's also something we've kind of like we've talked about quite a bit. And and I know that you had some comments on uh, not necessarily directly on what we said, but on a similar topic to which Stefan and I were talking last week, which is about uh, the sort of international situation around uh, the G20 and the G8 and sort of international cooperation. So what we uh, agreed to uh, just during our quick break there was that uh, we're going to start with your comments and I may mix in some of these other stories. So um, uh, we, Stefan and I talked quite a bit about uh, sort of the G20 last uh, over the last few weeks and sort yeah. of hypothesized a little bit about um, the danger versus the maybe hidden opportunity of a power vacuum maybe being filled by someone more motivated to do something than even Barack Obama, much less sure. Donald Trump. So what are what are your initial thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's just so interesting and, and looking at it even beyond just the, that sort of high level uh, diplomacy aspect. And I'm just so encouraged by the number of people that are now stepping up on these issues um, because Trump is who he is and saying what he is saying. That we're just seeing so many people and whether it's, you know, looking at on the global stage with it looks like uh, uh, Germany and China, you know, very much kind of stepping in to, to sort of fill that role. Uh, we've got France with uh, Macron and, you know, and, and it presents once again, Canada has the opportunity to sort of punch above its weight mm-hmm. when it comes to these uh, uh, international uh, relationships that I felt like we had that for a while when I was growing up. I was always really proud of sort of Canada's role in that scene. And then for a while, we really took a back seat and just sort of followed the U.S. blindly. But now there's this opportunity where all of a sudden, you know, and it was so stark uh, in that contrast at the last G20 when we had the G19, when we had 19 <laughs> countries support something. And it was so clear how off on an island America was. And then also to see in America – uh, cities stepping up and states stepping up and companies stepping up. And I kind of have this, this, this little sort of idea or this thesis, which is that um, I think it's so easy for us to uh, uh, put our responsibility onto our leaders, that when we feel like they've got it, that they get it, that they can handle it, that they're in charge, that it really kind of gives us a free pass to do nothing. Um, the, the term that I've used this is the diffusion of responsibility. 
right? And it's so easy when there is someone in charge, right, that, that takes issues for us to just let go of our personal responsibility, sort of put it on them. They've got it. But now in the U.S., it's so abundantly clear for people who are concerned about these issues uh, that, that, that Trump and his entire administration is entirely against, um, you know, what a lot of us hold as core values. And as such, I think that there was a bit of a shock when he first got elected. I think everyone was a little bit rattled and frozen. And then for me, there was a real turning point when uh, he announced that he was pulling out of Paris, which he didn't really need to do. And I've seen some analysis that it really – I mean it was all kind of PR anyway. They wouldn't be able to actually pull out until like right after the next turn. So it's really it was, you know, how effective is it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that it's the type of thing where that – like the outpouring of support we had for Paris – in the week following, like I've never heard so much support for Paris in the however many years right. that we've been doing this. And that now all of a sudden that was the catalyst, mm. right? So that now all of a sudden I think that we're recovering from this little shell shock, from this sort of getting rattled, that now it's however many years or months after it's been six months since his inauguration that we're now starting to say, OK, like we're in this. Mm. What can I do about it? And that we're seeing that from from all levels, from sort of grassroots organizations all the way up to these sort of uh, global multilateral organizations that I think it's really uh, it's really powerful. And that, um, you know, so I just kind of wanted to point that, that, you know, forgive me for sort of silver lining the travesty that is Trump. Um, but it's the type of thing where I do see I, I always have this idea of the, the pendulum sort of switching. And, uh, and, and I do see uh, 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 people stepping up to really feel that they need to do their part. Mm. What I want to add to that, uh, I'd like to yes and to that, Tim. And uh, we've both done some improv, I believe, in the past. So yes and. Um, uh, what I, what I want to yes and to that was uh, what it makes me think about was specifically um, the something hundred whatever mayors. Um, and because it's been a long-running theme in my mind, which comes up on the show occasionally, but not nearly as often as I think about it, unlike other things, um, is this idea of sort of like you know the global power structure and 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 I've there's a TED talk uh, on this various topic about so one of the things that will change in the future or and and perhaps we should be encouraging uh, is perhaps I think it's highly debatable uh but how much how empowered uh local municipal leaders should be for totally. for a few reasons one of them being is that they're a lot more accountable to their electorate uh they generally have a much more sort of personal feel like as in people feel like so with us uh, here in the city of toronto in, in ontario canada we have uh, for our international listeners we have uh mayor john tory and uh you know love him or hate him he did like if he he rides the subway right and some people love him some people hate him i, I honestly i think most Torontonians are kind of ambivalent. They're like, I don't love him, but he hasn't offended me that badly yet. So whatever. I on that's my finger on the pulse personally um, of how most people on average feel about our mayor. But uh, especially after the crack smoking previous one, uh, it's just kind of like fine. Whatever. He's not a drug addict. I don't care. <laughs> um, but so I mean, I'm not necessarily see him as a global leader, but just this idea that sure. like you know Mayor Tory rides the subway, and yeah. if you were to see him on the subway, he's not surrounded by bodyguards and. Yeah. If you're crazy, he might try and avoid you. But like generally speaking, if you're like, hey, Meritori, he'll be like, hey, what's up? Yeah. You know, and like that sort of connect like that. I think that breeds a, a level of confidence in the city that like even if he then, you know, two weeks later goes and does something that you didn't like, you're like, oh, well, I met him. He didn't breathe fire. He doesn't have horns like he's a person I disagree with. Right. And I think it, it has a really positive effect on the political climate and people's feeling like they actually have an ability to affect change. Sure. And and as more and more as the world 
cityifies as the witty ur- uh, city as the world urbanifies, if you will. Yeah. Um, they're having more power de facto simply because more and more people are there, and the, but the political infrastructure hasn't caught up to reflect that disproportionate amount of power, which is where a lot of these, you know, rural versus urban, um, you know, political conflicts happen and this happens in in every country i have any knowledge of their political system is that there's this dynamic where uh you know fewer people tend to be in in rural areas they tend to on average be more conservative but because of the way the system's set up they have disproportionate meaning equal even though there's far less of them sort of political power and that that's this seems to the world over becoming increasingly obvious sort of issue with political systems and and i'm I don't know. I've, I'm, I'm not sold on it entirely, but I, I feel like one of the things we can do to on, uh, on other issues, but just generally to help on climate change is to empower mayors uh, because they seem to be, generally speaking, far more accountable and people are, will, are willing to throw their trust into them and also yeah. seem generally to be more interested in doing real things because of their position. I don't and, know. And even lower than that, I would go you know, as far as here in Toronto in terms of councillors. Mm-hmm. Like it's really it's 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 amazing. You know, municipal politics is not sexy, but it is so darn effective. Mm. And there's the opportunity to, to have a really strong voice when you get that sort of grassroots support. Um, and and that yeah, I think that you know it's it's interesting. We'll see. You know, one idea I've heard kind of kicked around in terms of we're imagining new systems <laughs> is that really what we should have uh, for for. Uh, uh, jurisdictions here is that we should we should have a global governing body, mm. right? And then we shouldn't have countries, we shouldn't have presidents and prime ministers, and we shouldn't have provinces, we shouldn't have premiers. We should have super hyper local mayors and municipalities making their own, their decisions. And that if we just really kind of took all the the federal and 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 provincial responsibilities and either uploaded them to a global that could deal with some of these like global systems, like when we talk about security and when we talk about climate change, when so many of these systems are now global mm. entirely, we're all in this together. And then and then download everything else that's really kind of on the grassroots level uh, to give municipalities and really local jurisdictions. Uh, the ability to to make their own decisions. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of wild. I you know, uh, uh, cities in Canada, to my knowledge, I think Toronto is the only city that's allowed to issue bonds, mm-hmm. meaning to actually have debt. That I believe that every other municipality, I think in Canada, maybe it's just Ontario, is not legally allowed to run a deficit. Which you know, I understand from a fiscal responsibility standpoint, but think about how much that limits you to be able to make some of these long-term investments that we spoke to Matthew about. Mm-hmm. We know it's not a techn- technology challenge. It's a financing challenge. So when these municipalities aren't allowed to issue the debt that they need to make these investments in the infrastructure that is going to have so much savings over decades – Right. So it's, you know, if, if we were to give them more power, if we were to, to give them the opportunity uh, to be able to kind of, you know, sort of have have their own destiny, then um, I think there's a lot of good that can be done at this local level. I mean, and I think to to do a sort of like zoom down for this purpose of a metaphor, it's almost kind of like our current system is almost kind of like, you know, going having to down go down to the urban, you know, Toronto or whatever local planning office to ask them for, for permission to move a bookshelf in your house. 
just to the extent that you know we mayors and and sure. urban centers have so much responsibility sure. and so little power to with which to manage that responsibility well i'll tell you one thing that i'm all about in toronto right now for housing prices is mm-hmm. laneway homes mm-hmm. and for me this is such a no-brainer you know take these big towers that are putting such a huge strain on our infrastructure and you know aren't community at all lay them sideways down along the multitude of laneways that we have and boom we've just increased density but in a way where the city can still breathe and where the stress on that infrastructure is way more spread out and the reason we don't have that is primarily because of municipal you know zoning regulations the ability to to access certain things there's a certain rigidity that is preventing us from doing that and you know when i think about all these old homes here in toronto and the amount of money it would cost to retrofit them to make them sustainable you know if i could take that money and just build out a small little mini home in a laneway you know i could have a net zero home at a very reasonable cost in a great neighborhood in toronto well, Tim, I, I was enjoying our conversation so much, I almost forgot to check the clock. We are, in fact, out of time, but I want to just preview if folks were in, enjoying this conversation. You're going to be sticking around with me for a minute on the bonus show, which will be out Monday if you're listening live, uh, about a similar topic about psychology and city, but we're talking about attitudes of drivers versus cyclists will be our bonus show topology going for, and urbanism carrying into the bonus show. Uh, thank you very much both to Tim and to Matthew for joining us as this week's guest. You've been listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM and The Green Majority Podcast. Thanks for listening. Take care, and we'll talk to you next week.